The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. All right. Uh, You ready? You got your Bibles? All right. Turn in your copy of God's Word then to Exodus 28. We're going to take a couple chapters today, 28 and 29, as we've been making our way passage by passage through the book of Exodus. Uh, We're in uh, part two, looking at the second half here. And if you are new or you've just uh, joined us, you can go back and listen to the previous chapters and other messages there on our website or uh, through our podcast. Um, it's It's been a great journey with the Israelites, hasn't it? You know, in the last few weeks, man, maybe it's been a lot to take in as we've covered some pretty large sections of the scripture, haven't we? Last week, looking at the tabernacle and the week before that, all those laws, but I hope that in it you have learned much and grown in your worship. And so today we come to these two chapters that uh, describe the, the priests and the priesthood that God would establish here. And so as we uh, get into it, let me just ask this question this morning. Do you have a section uh, in your closet of clothes that you have deemed your church clothes? Any y'all? No, none of you? Like, nah, just wear whatever's clean, whatever's on top of the pile, huh? No, well, what, what, if you do, what makes for church clothes? What is it like, how much you spend on them, how fancy they are, what they, uh, you know, where you bought them? What's that? No stains? That's, that's, good, that's, all right, all right. Well, hey, depending upon where you grew up, your denomination, the culture, the place, there are various dress codes in church, isn't there? Dress codes and what uh, people wear to their uh, to the clothes, to the jackets, to hats, to even footwear. In Hawaii, you might find folks wearing flip flops. Here in Texas, you're going to find folks wearing cowboy boots, most likely. Uh, in the city, you might find some loafers, and in developing countries, they might find bare. But it has always been changing. It's morphed and changed throughout history, throughout time. And there's even a dress code amongst the clergy or church leadership, isn't there? Some of you maybe have grown up in denominations like I did, where the the pastor or the priest or whatever they might be called wore a robe, some more traditional clothing or a collar. But in today's passage, we're going way back beyond any uh, of that history, way back to the formation of Israel. Now, remember, the Israelites have been set free from their Egyptian bondage. They were under the, uh, the burden uh, and tasks of the Egyptians and God in the ways that only he can do set them free uh, through all those judgments, through the Red Sea. Now they're in the wilderness and God is forming this new nation He's laid down those laws that would govern them as a people in just society and how they would relate to one another. He's laid down the foundation for how they would worship and how they would come to meet with the Lord in the place in which he would dwell. And so the the chapters that we'll look at this morning, they are still in the midst of all these instructions that God is giving to Moses. Moses is at the top of Mount Sinai with his assistant Joshua there, and he is continuing to teach about these things. And now he is teaching about the priesthood, those men that would stand in the gap, who would mediate between God and people and the people to God as their representatives. And so if you're just kind of thinking big picture here, chapter 28 is, is there are the instructions then about what they are to wear and the purpose behind it. And 
chapter 29, which we'll look at where how then they were to be ordained or consecrated, set us apart for this service. And so you know, we can sum up these chapters here like this, if you're taking notes, that the God of glory sets us free and establishes a priesthood as mediators. He sets us free and establishes a priesthood, just like he would do with the Israelites. And we'll see how that relates even to us today. And so join me in your Bibles now in Exodus 28. I want to just read for us as we begin the first five verses of Exodus 28. Look there in your copy of God's Word. It says this, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, says God speaking to Moses, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful whom I have filled with the spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy scarlet yarns and fine twisted linen. Now this is God's word for God's people. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter. You can uh, read the, the, these uh, words, the rest of them this afternoon and in your time with the Lord this week as you continue to study it. But here's how you should know this chapter lays out. The first five verses that I just read for you really uh, act as a summary of the instructions. And then the rest of the chapter explains how each of those pieces that were listed there in verse uh, four uh, were to be made how they were to be instructed. So verses one to five, just get it. It's like, a, it's like your introductory paragraph. And then from there on out, he says, okay, now this is how you will make each of these pieces. And, uh, and it's in uh, some great description. Now, I was going to, it was a little busy this week. Thank you, by the way, for many of you that were praying for me as I got time with my grandfather in Wisconsin. Um, but I ran out of time because I was going to actually dress up like the, uh, like the high priest here. Now, I... Uh, I'm not going to, but it would look something uh, like this. Put that picture on the, on the screen here. Could you imagine if I wore something like this? It'd be all over the Facebook or something or in the newspapers. Local pastor goes back in time. I don't know, but it would look something like this. And, and so each of the, the rest of, of chapter 28, then it describes uh, uh, what each of these pieces uh, would look like in some detail, not to all the detail, but really for the purpose and what it is pointing to. And so just some notes here. We'll come back and look through each of these pieces. But what you should know here is that the garments and things were made of the same material as the, we saw last week in the construction of the tabernacle in the tent. And each piece is a reminder of God's holiness is what the high priest would wear to set himself apart. And only when he was performing his priestly duties, it was only to be worn in an official capacity and not these weren't his everyday uh, working clothes. But it was to set him apart and to, uh, and to, to, to uh, say that he is, he is on duty right now. For it was a serious responsibility, which you will read and find a couple times in, in uh, chapter 28, that a failure to obey these rules, failure to wear these clothes, a laziness in the performance of these duties and representing uh, the people to God and God to the people as a priest would result in their death. 
They were warned. It was a very serious responsibility. Actually, two of the sons that we just read about in verse 1 there, Aaron, his two first two sons, Nadab and Abihu, if you know the story and how it continues in Leviticus 10, guess what happens to them? Yeah. The Lord strikes them down, for they do not follow uh, the Lord's commands. They take matters into their own hands. They offer strange fire, and boom, they gone. The other two sons, Eliezer and Ithamar, uh, rise up in their place. And so uh, each of the, the pieces here that you see on the screen, they're described throughout it. The turban there it is, uh, was to be worn on the, the head. The tunic or that white underpiece was to cover their body. It's not listed on here, but in chapter 28, you'll also find uh, instructions for their undergarments even, that their nakedness was not to be exposed to the Lord as they would serve the, uh, the people. And so their undergarments, and then that white tunic would uh, come over uh, them. And then the, the blue robe, uh, the sleeveless robe, which is actually pretty stylish, I think. Um, that It's kind of like a long vest robe thing. And that would cover them all the way down. The breast piece there that uh, would, uh, would come uh, across their chest here had lots of jewels. If you're reading here in, in uh, chapter 28, verse 15, he calls it the breast piece of judgment or decision. As they would uh, 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 come and, and uh, render a judgment, they would uh, settle disputes as God's representatives as well. And so in this, uh, uh, on this uh, breast piece, as you can see here, the kind of the, the, you know, the covering over their chest, it had many jewels. Twelve stones were actually on these jewels here. Looking back in your Bible at chapter 28, verse 21, I want you to see this here. It says there in verse 21, There shall be twelve stones with their names according to the names of the sons of Israel. They shall be like signets, each engraved with its name for the twelve tribes. And jump down to verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. And so why do I point this out here? Because again, here's that mediatorial role of the priests as they would represent all the people, the 12 tribes there in those stones. There was also the two uh, uh, onyx stones on their shoulders, which also had it uh, uh, there in the ephod, which would hold it together and the bells and pomegranates that were there in the sash, the pomegranates uh, just pointing back to the Garden of Eden and the flourishing and the beauty of the Lord and the bells here. There's some mystery about it here, some speculation. Some think that the bells were so that when they would hear the bells ringing, they would know, oh, the priest is performing his duties. Others speculate, well, as he would go into the holy place and if he wasn't consecrated, if he didn't follow through, if he had sin in his own life and those bells stopped ringing, then he was done for, and they would have to figure out some way to get that guy out of there. There's also some speculation and some interesting things here in verse 30. Look at it in chapter 28. In the breastpiece of judgment, you shall also put the Urim and Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now, it's mostly unknown what these two pieces are, the Urim and Thummim. It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? And there's not a whole lot of uh, description about it, but uh, the Bible knowledge commentary offers, I think, some helpful uh, insight. He says, apparently the Urim and Thummim were two stones, and how they were used in determining God's will is unknown, but some suggest the Urim represented a negative answer and the Thummim a positive answer. 
Others suggest that the object simply symbolized the high priest's authority to inquire of God or the assurance that the priest would receive enlightenment, which is really what Urim means as lights and Thuman means perfections. And so they would receive enlightenment and perfect knowledge. And so they had these pieces in there, and who knows, were they like dye that they cast? Were they stones? For not really sure, but uh, they had some significance as to the authority that the priests would have as they would, again, represent the people before God and God to the people. So lots of details, a very interesting outfit, isn't it? But what are we to make of all this? What, what, what are we to do with, with these things? Is, is God like in the fashion business here? We've seen each week that God cares about the details and clothes they're covered with a righteousness, not their own. All of these, the garments here, what is it meant to show us is that they were covered by a purity, a wealth, a righteousness that they did not earn, that they did not uh, receive on their own from head to toe, from inside and out. They were clothed with something that they didn't earn that was far beyond any wealth that they could attain on their own. And as such, as they would put this on, this was the only way in God's good design that a priest, that a human being could approach the Lord and be in his presence in the most holy place and not die. And so the priest, God goes through all these details for the priest so that someone could approach him. But even so, this wasn't just a mere costume any more than like, you know, dressing up as a princess gains you access into the royal palace. You can't just put on an Elsa costume and think that you can enter into a castle. No, the priests then were to be also consecrated or set apart to ordained for service to the Lord. And so with these clothes, then we get into chapter 29 for who can even put on this outfit? And so join me in, in chapter 29, and I'm going to read the first nine verses here for us. Again, a summary of sorts as to the beginning of the consecration. Read, look at chapter 29, and I'll read it for us. It says this, Now this is what you shall do to them, as the priests, to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish, and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them, and you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them, and the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Now this is God's word for God's people. These verses describe the, the beginning of the ordination from the gathering of the animals and food for what would take place and then the washing and cleansing and the clothing they were to wear and the anointing with the oil. But the rest of this, the chapter then describes the sacrifices that would make it possible. And what, what were the animals? What are the sacrifices that we just read about? A bull and two rams. And so the rest of the chapter really describes these sacrifices. The first uh, bull in, in verses 10 through 14 was uh, for the priests. 
was a sacrifice for their own sin. The laying on of hands that you will read about there was an identification with their personal sin. That this bull is in my place. And they would uh, burn then the uh, internal organs on the altar there. The sign, the picture of their inner consecration, of their, their inward sin being cleansed. And the rest of the body was to then be burned outside the camp. Not there in the center of the camp where the, uh, the tabernacle would be in the most holy of holies in the center and the rest of the people gone, but outside as a picture of our sin that separates us from the presence of God. The sin that would separate them, the, the casting off of it being burned outside the camp. And so the bull, the priests would then offer this on their own. And then there was a first ram versus 15 through 18, which was a sacrifice to the Lord. It was to be burned in its entirety on the altar as a complete and ultimate sacrifice of everything to the Lord. But the second ram was much more detailed. Lots of pictures here in verses 19 through 34, symbolic in numerous ways of the setting apart of the priest. And so it's, it's, it's strange here in, in many ways. Look at verse 19 here. This is the second ram. He says, you shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. Again, a personal identification, and you shall kill the ram and take its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of his right ears of the sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of the right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. What in the world? some ways you, you read about the priests and their duties and they seem less like pastors and more like, you know, meat cutters, butchers. But here again, a commentator is helpful. It said his blood was placed on the right ears, right thumbs, and right big toes of Aaron and his sons, signifying that they were cleansed and dedicated to God. Blood on the ear may have symbolized dedication to the hearing of God's word. Blood on the thumb may have pictured holiness in doing God's work. And blood on the toe may have spoken of walking carefully in the service of God, end quote. So all of this is a picture, a strange picture, no doubt, because this is far beyond uh, where we are today. But it's some symbolism of their consecration, of their dedication, of the, uh, of, the, of the sacrifice that stood in their place, the substitute that they could live and serve in this way. And so after this then, then pieces of the uh, ram were to be sacrificed and they were to be consumed by the, the priests as a way to show uh, uh, that God is providing for the priests in their service. And so in uh, the sacrificial system that would be established, some of what was brought to the Lord was completely sacrificed and others of it, this was God's ordained means and way of taking care of the priests so that they could be entirely set apart, not having to work, not having to keep their own livestock as it would come. And this is how he would take care of them physically so they had stuff to eat again they would come this would be these parts would be consumed and then there's as you read through the chapter a wave offering is made in verse 26 and they're waving the smoke as a symbol as a picture of them standing between god and the people they wouldn't be waving it back and forth but from the altar to the people as a as a uh, as a picture of their representation between god and man and now this wasn't just a one-day thing the consecration, the ordination for these priests, it was, a, as you read through it, it was a seven-day event. 
There in verse 35 here, each of these animals was to be offered daily all throughout the week, but it even doesn't end there because the chapter ends with uh, the daily sacrifices that would be ongoing with two lambs uh, daily and other food offerings that would be given to the tombs. He says, it shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Why do, we, why do they do all this stuff? Redemption. Why do they go through all the consecration? Why do they go through all these bloody sacrifices? Why do they bring all these things? To meet with God. That he would be their God and he, they would be his people just as he promised them when he heard their cries in their slavery. In the midst of their brutal enslavement, they cried out to the Lord, and God hears their cries and promises to be their God. He has delivered them. He has set them free now to meet with them. And this priesthood, these mediators, meet, uh, mediate in between representing them. They stand in the gap. And so what do we make of all of this consecration? What do we make of, of a chapter and all the sacrifices and all these things? I think we could say this about it. it's on the screen, that the priests were consecrated by a life, not their own. They were consecrated by a life, not their own. The animals died so that they didn't and so that the people didn't. It was the only way that they could approach God's dwelling place. It was the only way that those last verses that I just read could happen, that they would meet with God in the most holy place and he would be their God. And even so, this isn't just mere play acting. It's not just rituals. They're not just pretending to be superheroes. God would be their God. He would meet with his people through the priests as the mediator standing in the gap. And church, this would go on and on and on, generation after generation, through their portable years in the wilderness until into the settlement of the land of Israel and then even into the permanent years. The high priest Jesus is the better high priest. Jesus didn't need these uh, clothing. He didn't need this consecration in the same way because he set aside these uh, practices and was the perfect fulfillment of each of them. See, turn over in your Bible now to Hebrews 7. We're, we're jumping around a little bit. I know it. Just follow along with me. It's good exercise this morning. Hebrews 7 verse 18 is where we'll pick it up. And I want to just read these verses here and make some comments as we go. Speaking of this priesthood, again, Hebrews 7, verse 18, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Church, look here. We have a better hope in Jesus Christ the hope of meeting with him, the hope of being in his presence, the hope of being saved and dwelling with God is a better hope in Jesus Christ. Continue on in verse 20. And it was not without an oath, 
For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. That's a guarantee, a promise behind it, an eternal backing. But this one, speaking of Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. I mean, that makes sense. That's just speaking to their humanity. The priests, they would serve a certain time, you know, actually about 20 years. They could serve from the age of 30, and then they had to retire at age 50. Must be nice, right? Not have to do any real work till you're 30. And... No. They would, they would die, and they had to, there are multiple and many but Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Church, who is our great high priest mediating and making intercession for us today? Who is alive and in heaven interceding and pleading with us or pleading with the Father on our behalf? Jesus. There's no need for a priesthood because Christ is is our ultimate and final high priest. Above the heavens. See, church, look here. Jesus didn't need robes. He didn't need to be consecrated. Why? Because these verses described him innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, remember the bull, and then for those of the people, since he, that's Jesus, did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which come later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, former tent, that tabernacle, the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Remember that verse? Exodus 25, when God says, hey, do everything, build this tabernacle exactly as I said. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as is the covenant he mediates is better, since it has been enacted on better promises. The church, Christ is both a priest and himself a sacrifice. And one man, he is both the, the, the high priest and the sacrifice. The Gospel Application Bible offers some helpful notes on this. Listen here as I read it. Jesus, our great high priest, was chosen by God to serve as priest. He identified with human beings and our suffering and obedience so that he might be sympathetic to our weaknesses. He did not require holy garments to cover his sin, for he was the sinless one who was holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He bore his people upon his heart as he made intercession for them, and he continues to do so. 
same way that the priest would have the stones uh, engraved with the names of the tribes of Israel on his heart as he would come and make intercession. Christ, too, bore us on his heart and makes intercession, continuing to do it. And he then clothes us with his righteousness so that we, as those who participate in his priesthood, have our sins covered and ourselves holy to the Lord. Speaking of the consecration, then of Jesus, the washing, vesting, anointing is all ultimately fulfilled in the priesthood of the sinless Jesus, for he was already clean, clothed, and spirit-empowered in his work as priest. Only Jesus could make what they were wearing and all the rituals and things that we don't fully understand back in, in, in Exodus, and we see it here, the writer of Hebrews is pointing us to something greater that Jesus is both the priest and the sacrifice, and as such, he's the only one who can bring us ultimately to God. Do you believe it, church? Do you believe that this is the Christ? Do you see it afresh today that he is holy, that he is wise? Our sin has separated us, and we cannot come to the Lord apart from Christ. Through our repentance and belief in Jesus as the only true priest and sacrifice, as the Lord of our life, we can be saved and have this unlimited access to God. There's so much truth and application in these chapters, isn't there? There's so much, there's so much truth, there's so many metaphors, so many pictures here as we think about the movement of the priests to Christ as the high priest set apart and how Jesus was set apart from all else and how we then live as set apart. You've probably heard this truth. You've heard this scriptural teaching from 1 Peter 2 of the what is called the priesthood of all believers. What it is not meant to mean is that all believers can go rogue and independent and make up their own laws and how they worship and do whatever they want to meet with. God. But it means that the Levitical priesthood, those through the line of Aaron, that family that it would be passed on, that the Levitical priesthood has been set aside as the only ones who could serve the Lord and meet directly with him. But what it does mean, what the priesthood of believers does mean is that each of us, if you are saved today, the Spirit resides in you, you have gained access to the Lord and have then uh, consequently been commissioned into serving the Lord. Church, if you're a believer today, you are covered by a righteousness, not your own. You're covered by Christ's righteousness. The same is true. You are, are, are consecrated by a life that is not your own. You have been set apart by a life that is not your own. There was a substitute who stood in your place, and his name is Jesus, the great high priest and sacrifice for our sins. And so what do we make of all this? What do we take away when it comes to these thoughts and what the priests were and who Jesus is and what we are to do? Well, we can say this, be covered in Christ's righteousness, and that begins by putting off and putting on. If you're taking some notes here, here's some application for you. Normally we work application in throughout all the message, but here we're just going to end with the opening the fire hydrant and, and my call to be covered by Christ's righteousness, by putting off your old self, repenting and putting on Christ. Putting on Christ. This is New Testament language. As we, we talk about taking off our old, our, our, our daily clothes, the clothes that we try to work our own righteousness in and putting on Christ. 
and believing that he is the only way to salvation, be covered in Christ. But also we are to dress from the inside out, from our hidden thoughts to the outward acts of our life. If we're to be covered in Christ, we must let this cover us and from the uh, innermost parts to the outermost parts, from our hidden sins to our enslaving sins and everything in between. In David's prayer in Psalm 19, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Those things that we're unaware of or blind to or those things that nobody else knows. He says also, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Those things we know are wrong, but do anyways. And let them not get to the place of dominion over me as enslaving sins. Where they then become our master. He says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, church, as we're covered in Christ's righteousness, as we seek to live for him, as we seek to uh, be those who love the Lord and living a righteous life, it happens from the inside out of bringing our hidden thoughts, our actions, our affections, everything to the Lord. And you know what? We have to do this daily. The same way that those sacrifices were happened as a daily reminder that we have a substitute. This sanctification process is a daily discipline. See, putting off and putting on, repenting and believing are not simply a historical event from that time you were saved. Like, oh yeah, I repented of my sin. I believed in Jesus back in the 60s or five years ago or whenever it was. It's not simply just a one-time historical event, but a daily ongoing activity as one pastor said, the two-stroke engine of the Christian life. We are constantly repenting and believing, confessing our sin, and believing and trusting that Christ has paid the way. At least we should be, right? We sin against our kids, as we sin against our spouse, as we sin against other believers, as we uh, recognize our sinfulness and trust in Christ's saving grace, even in the moment we we be covered in Christ's righteousness even daily. And why do we do all this? Why would we be covered in Christ's righteousness? Well, we do this for glory and for beauty. Did you catch that in chapter 28 as I was reading it? As he's telling them to, uh, to uh, put these clothes on, verse 2, he says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother. Why? For glory and for beauty. He says it again later in Chapter verse 40, for Aaron's sons, you shall make coats and sashes and caps, and you shall make them, why? For glory and for beauty. The way we say that around here is, why would we live a, a holy life? Why would we seek to live in this way, clothed in Christ's righteousness? Well, it's for worship and for witness. For the glory of God, for our worship, ascribing to the Lord the glory to his name, that he would receive the praise and honor due that, to him and him alone through the way that we speak, through the way that we act, through the way that we spend our time for his glory, but also for beauty. That the way we live our life would be a witness, a fragrant aroma to those who watch how we live our life. That they see the transformation that has happened in you and in me, and in the people that you know, in your family. And this then would be the witness to the world about the transforming power of God and what it means to live as those covered and following Christ. We do it for glory and for beauty. Church, are you covered in Christ's righteousness? 
The second point is like it in the same way that the priests were consecrated uh, by a life not their own, so we are to be consecrated by a life not our own. And so the, the last thing here I'll say is to be consecrated in service to Christ. As priests, we have duties, a responsibility, a stewardship, and it starts with trusting Christ and loving his commands and taking him at his word in every situation in our life of believing that his way is the best, even when it's unpopular, even when I don't want to, even when it will be harder. And so how are we consecrated in service to Christ? Well, it begins by stopping and starting. Again, this is New Testament language from Romans 6. We're to, in, in the same way, we're to stop presenting our life, our members, our, the, the things that we have in service to sin, but rather in service or sacrifice to Christ, just like an offering. Hear these words from Paul in Romans 6, 12 through 14. It says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. To kill sin. He says, then do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Romans 6, 12. It's, here's the picture again as an offering of presenting it as a sacrifice and your members just being like your body, your faculties, your materials, your time, talent, treasure. Don't produce, present them to sin, but rather present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Church, if we're going to be consecrated in service to Christ. We must stop and we must start. We must commit. We must resolve right now. Right now. Maybe there's sins that you know that you've been hiding. There's things that you need. And you say, I, need, I just need to stop doing that. But I need help. I need accountability. I need to confess it. There's a church full of people here who you can talk to about that stuff, your small group, so you can bring these things to them, talk it out. They will walk with you in grace and mercy uh, as you have the accountability that you need. But also, as we're to be consecrated in service of Christ, we must get to work. We must get to work, and uh, the priests had uh, responsibilities. They had to, uh, pre- to, to fulfill uh, their duties that God had given them. And last week, and here it is again before us, that everyone contributes. You remember what he said in chapter 28, that, that I appointed the skillful, those with skill, to contribute uh, to the Lord. And guess what? Who's the skillful today? Who has talent and gifts that God has given for the glory of God and the benefit of his people? All of us, we have the Spirit of God in you. This is us. And so we must get to work using the gifts and the time and the talents that God has given us and giving a portion of it. Who's getting your first? Who's getting your best? Who's getting the most? Is it in service to Christ or in service to yourself or something else? Let us be those who set aside our best and our first for the Lord. And why would we do any of this? Why would we be consecrated in service to Christ? Well, we do this for relationship. Remember how chapter 29 ended. There's a vertical relationship here that he's calling us to. He would dwell among them and be their God. We are consecrated in service to Christ. Here, church, get this first, vertical. 
The priority is to meet with God. See, when we serve, when we work for Christ, it's not for us to feel good about ourselves, like I did this. It's not even uh, primarily for the mission so that other people benefit. We serve to please God, even if we never see the fruit, even if we never receive congratulations, even if we never receive thanks. Why? Because then when people are served and they don't know who to thank, they don't know what to do, they just thank God. They give him the praise that is due to him. And so we do this for relationship and service to the Lord, vertical first. But that doesn't mean there is no horizontal benefit. It doesn't mean that there is no joy in working together and serving together and, and the spiritual community that we have as we are united together in Christ. See, church, these uh, chapters here on the priests and what they wear and how they're consecrated, they're full of all kinds of pictures, all kinds of applications for how we are to live. See, there's one outfit that dresses us for worship and service, and it's not one that you can buy. It's not one that uh, you can earn on, uh, of your own doing for the outfit that dresses us uh, appropriately for worship and service was already paid for at the cross. It was paid for by Christ. Christ traded, the, he took the prison clothes that was our sin on himself and he gave us uh, uh, the outfit of his perfect righteousness. We remember that are symbolic as we remember regularly in communion, which is in itself, it contains a picture and much symbolism similar to the altar, to the sacrifices, to the garments that the priests wore. Before, though, they were remembering what had yet to happen in order for them to meet with God. But we here stand today looking back, right? Celebrating what has already happened the sacrifice that has already been made, the substitute that already stood in our place. And it is this that we remember as his body was broken and his blood was poured out. 